talk this much about this. I talk more about this on Lock and Load than anything else, but I started thinking about this, and I don't really understand how this sometimes works out. And let me explain what I'm talking about. <clears throat> the woods are, for the most part, pretty darn safe. You can spend every weekend hiking through areas infested with dangerous wildlife and see nothing more than a snowshoe hare or a mule deer. But then you're relying on lady luck, which can be fickle sometimes. There's always at least a small chance that you run into something or someone that wants to take a peek inside of you. And this is the time a lot of people are getting out. Now, when you go into the woods, you should have some means of protection, right? Self-protection. And uh, so the first order of the day is to know your adversary, the highest order that you can get into. And this is a discussion about hiking and camping, uh, not hunting. When you choose to commune with nature, this defines a short list of the bad guys you'll need to concern yourself with. If you aren't in the northern Rockies, things get much easier since you don't have to worry about grizzly bears or northwest Canada's brown bears. And uh, <clears throat> mountain lions are likewise mostly limited to the western U.S., but have been spotted in the east as well. For the eastern adventurer, the biggest Worry is the black bear, and to a lesser extent, tasty members of the porcine family, but coyotes can be aggressive as well. And then there's the, always the angry wild pig. No matter where you roam, though, the two-legged predator, he's out there too, and they have been known to present problems as well. Ah. Now, black bears are the wimps of the woods, usually. If a black bear attacks you, it's to eat you. It is predatory. Most black bear encounters end with a black with a bear showing, uh, you know, feet don't fail me now. Now, if you come up on a mother bear, there's, that's a different that, that's a different story altogether. But um, you can never run from a predator. And with a black bear, if you just yell, hey, bear, and raise your arms over your head, this probably means the bear's going to run away. That doesn't mean they're harmless, though. <clears throat> the only time a black bear will attack you when they don't intend to eat you is if they're protecting their cubs. And bear experts recommend fighting for your life if you're attacked by a black bear because it wants to eat you. Now, you're probably saying, well, I don't want to be eaten. Well, that means you need to, to fight back, and uh, this means bringing firepower to bear on the bear. Now, your primary weapon against any bear should be a can of bear spray if you want to carry it. Not pepper spray, but the 2% capsaicin stuff specifically for use on bears. And... Uh, <clears throat> Consider your point of aim at a 200-pound black bear that just put his head down and is charging you from 10 yards. Or how about two yards? How's your aim under duress? Will your round be strong enough to penetrate his skull? Can you find a heart shot and will the bear drop before it takes some good-sized chunks out of you? 
all in a couple of seconds. Now, with bear spray, you can put a big orange cloud of pain between you and the bear. And listen to what I'm about to say now. It will almost always stop the charge. But this is only going to be effective between 10 and 30 feet. And this is a two-hand hold because it is a high-pressure can. So you want to aim low so the spray doesn't go over the bear's head. Now, there's a lot of things that come into play with bear spray. So what if it's windy? What if it's raining? What if the black bear isn't affected by it? And that's when you get your gun out and shoot the bear. And you shoot it until it's no longer a threat. Of course, you check to be sure if it was legal to carry, right? Right? But what gun is the best for bear defense? Now, a 375 H&H Magnum, if it's always at the ready, that would do the trick, but that's not very practical on a Sunday hike. Now, for my money, for my money, it is the Glock Pattern 20 in in 10 millimeter. I got 15 rounds of 10 millimeter on tap. I can get some nice hard cast bullets that will put down just about any bear. Carry that with me, and it's good to go. 15 rounds on tap, a couple of spare magazines. I am good to go. Nice chest rig. Everything's great. Now, if it, unless you've actually seen a bear up close when it's really moving the way it can, it's hard to convey the power and the speed, especially of a, a grizzly. You'll, you'll see some people in Yellowstone, they'll, they'll come up on a grizzly, and the bear will uh, they'll be there watching, right? He'll, he'll see you in the car. And then they'll walk towards you while you're in the car. And then you'll see the bear turn and take off up the hill 30 yards away in three leaps, right? So if you're in the woods and that grizzly is 30 yards away, imagine that. What firearm can you bring to bear in less than two seconds? And forget about a long gun unless it's an SBR. You won't have time to swing it around and get on target. Logical conclusion is a handgun in a big, as big a caliber as you can comfortably manage. Now, you're talking about nothing less than a 357 Magnum for black bears, unless you're me and you're carrying a 10 millimeter. For grizzlies, a 44 Magnum is the minimum with a 454 or 500 Smith & Wesson recommended if you can handle the large frame. If it, when it comes to Canada's brown bears, you probably handguns are going to be sort of anemic. If you don't have a big bore rifle, you're probably on the menu. Now, grizzlies are the punks of the forest. It's very rare for them to prey on humans, but most grizzlies won't hesitate to slap you around to let you know who's boss. And you can see this in their tactics. They will bluff charge and knock you down, frequently taking a bite. If you're no longer a threat, the bear will usually leave. If you act like a scared little animal, it will return, it will return and eat you. Now, if you're in, if you have a very low line of sight, get the spray out. And if you have to shoot, put as many large bullets as you can in the area above the lowered skull and below the big muscular hump. If the bear is on you, shoot inside the mouth, in the eye, or in the chest under the neck. If that's your only strategy left, at least try not to be under the bear when it dies. 
Now, for ammunition, you're going to have to pick something that's going to, uh, you know, it's going to be hardball. It's not going to be expanding because you're going to have to punch through 8 to 12 inches of skin, muscle, and fat in order to hit a vital. Now, that's everybody's scary nightmare animal. What about the rest? Wolves, mountain lions, rabid badgers. Anything not a bear gets treated like a human, which for me means 20-plus rounds of, uh, you know, of 10 millimeter. That's why I take 10 millimeter. It works with everything. So, if you're going to, uh, if you're going to go in the woods, but get some bear spray, three tier. It's bear spray, right? Your favorite pistol, open carried in a retention holster is the way to go. Uh, for me, in the woods, it's the 10 millimeter. So that's always my favorite his, my, my favorite pistol. Ah. And the final line of defense, if you want to carry it, would be a big bore revolver. Like, I don't know, that maybe the Ruger Alaskan and whatever caliber they make those in. Those are almost anti-aircraft guns. So, just my thought about when you go in the woods. Because a lot of people are hiking right now, and a lot of people go out there with nothing. They're like, well, you know, I'm not here to hunt, and I'm not here for this, and I'm not here for that. Well, you are here to, to recreate, and that doesn't mean that you get attacked and eaten by an animal. Or just attacked and killed by an animal. Or just attacked and maimed by an animal, does it? I didn't think so. I mean, if you're going to, you know, you own guns, take them out there because you're going to be in the middle of a threat. In a threat situation. We'll be right back. This is Gun Owners News Hour. This is Gun Owners News Hour. Ah, a lot of you work and you have money tied up in a 401k. And some of you may or may not know that you are invested with BlackRock. And BlackRock is uh, their CEO is Larry Fink. He's not concerned with the actual discriminatory investment strategy that his firm executes. What he's upset about right now is uh, they're caught up in the growing anti-ESG pushback that's impacting his bottom line because Americans are paying more attention to this. And he revealed at the Aspen Ideas Festival that he's ashamed to be a part of the ESG debate. But this doesn't mean he's going to change the direction of what he's doing. It just means he's going to change the verbiage. Now, BlackRock... If you don't know, they, they, they manage $10 trillion in assets for investors. And that's a lot of money. And think bought into the ESG movement. That's the environmental, social, and governance investment strategy that started popping up more frequently about 10 or 12 years ago, where the activist investment managers began sacrificing their fiduciary responsibility to maximize your return, to instead abdicate that role in favor of producing and forcing a left-wing social and political agenda that has failed to succeed legislatively. 
Then we had Operation Choke Point under the Obama administration. This was launched by the FDIC and the Department of Justice to stop financial institutions from offering services to some regulated industries in an attempt to throttle banking services. This operation, which represented abuse of the agency's statutory authority, was first aimed at non-depository lenders, so-called payday lenders, but then expanded to target ammunition and firearm sales, tobacco sales, and pharmaceutical sales, among other industries. All of this being lumped into things that would be, you know, like porn online and that kind of stuff. They lumped them all into this to make them deplorable, if you would say. Now, Trump put an end to that, but ESG strategies have now been privatized. And if you look at it today, BlackRock has been uh, guilty of uh, pushing this, as are numerous major banks and investment institutions as well. Fink was questioned about his firm's devotion to ESG at the Aspen Ideas Festival and initially told the crowd, I'm ashamed of being part of this conversation. I'm not going to use the word ESG because it's been misused by the far left and the far right. But he's later pressed again. On being ashamed of his firm's position, and when pushed on a statement, he reversed course. I never said I was ashamed. I do believe in conscientious capitalism. <clears throat> now, I might have been caught tongue-tied on his firm's approach to ESG, but the bottom line reveals the impact and the pushback they have felt. He acknowledged to the crowd that Florida Governor uh, Ron DeSantis' decision in 2022 to pull $2 billion in state assets from BlackRock because of the woke ESG agenda hurt the firm. Something like that could cause a cascade effect. It'd be like a run on the bank, right? DeSantis wasn't alone in taking a strong stance against this flawed investment approach. Last October, Missouri Attorney General Scott Fitzpatrick divested $500 million in assets managed by BlackRock on behalf of the Missouri State Employees Retirement System. He criticized their blind commitment to ESG, noting that fiduciary duty must remain the top priority for investment managers, a duty some of them have abdicated in favor of forcing a left-wing social and political agenda. South Carolina's treasurer, Curtis Loftus, said he would remove $200 million of state retirement funds from BlackRock control by December. Louisiana's treasurer, John Schrader, told Financial Times that he would divest $794 million from BlackRock as well. Additionally, Utah and Arkansas committed to pull $100 and $125 million, respectively. Utah's treasurer, Marlowe Oaks, said, We need to ensure that the money is not being used to drive a separate agenda different from our obligation. The ESG pushback doesn't end there. In early August of last year, 19 state attorneys general sent a joint letter to Fink, voicing similar concerns that the company's ESG agenda hampers its ability to deliver a maximum return on investment for its shareholders. And it's been an anti-woke, anti-ESG tidal wave building, and the release is being felt by the likes of Fink and BlackRock and others. Now, the states haven't been alone in taking strong stands against discriminatory banking and lending practices against the firearm industry. In the House, they introduced the Firearm Industry Non-Discrimination Act to end the ability of corporate entities to profit from taxpayer-funded federal contracts while discriminating against a constitutionally protected industry at the same time. In the U.S. Senate, Senator Steve Daines has led the effort by introducing companion Find Act legislation. Don't expect that to pass. Not under Biden. But it's it's a start. 
Other federal efforts have led to bills being introduced to bar credit card companies from creating a special merchant category code, or MCC, to track lawful firearm-related purchases at firearm retailers. And they have backed off that effort after NSSF-led efforts in the states and the federal level. Major banking and lending institutions are realizing they're on notice. And they should. Law-abiding Americans aren't going to tolerate covert discrimination and backdoor boardroom politics that restricts their constitutional rights, especially the Second Amendment. If they don't change course, the bottom line will still continue to take hits. And sooner or later, you'll see something erupt to take that to take over that vacuum in the market. It won't exist very long. It won't exist very long. Um, Fink, is, Fink is an interesting guy. He was at uh, one of the uh, World Economic Forum meetings where he was out there talking about forcing behavior. And that's ESG, forcing behavior. So, um, you know, I look at that and uh, I see that for what it is. I see that for what it is. Getting out there and trying to turn a uh, an industry against other industries and not allow them to partake. We already see that with, uh, uh, for example, these these uh, legal marijuana dispensaries. I don't think they're allowed to deposit their money in a bank unless that's changed in the recent years. I don't think they're allowed to take payments with uh they go into a bank. I would hope that that would uh that that would be one of those things where you get out there and you say to yourself, well uh if it's illegal, why can't we put it in a bank? But see, there's no, of course, there's no constitutional right to sell marijuana. So, uh, that's just me ranging in thoughts as I sit here and I think about this. It is all nefarious. It is all absolutely, uh, it's all unconstitutional. It's always, it's always going to be this way, though. Always expect for their ingenuity and imagination to come through and come out with another way to restrict your rights because they hate that you have rights. Not just to, to keep them bare arms, but just rights in general. They like nothing better to just see you there. We'll be right back. This is Gun Owners News Hour. This is Gun Owners News Hour, and uh, going back to bears for whatever reason. I don't know why I arranged it this way, but I did. Uh, Dean Weingarten got out there, and he discovered a plausible fourth failure of a defensive firing of a handgun against a bear that has been discovered. Now, handguns normally work, okay? They normally work. 
The fourth incident was found, and the incident is discovered because they've been uh, Amalan has been doing a lot of FOIA requests, and it involves a polar bear and a human. <laughs> and the incident occurred near Churchill, Canada, as part of two incidents from October 19th to October 26, 1986. Bear spray had recently become available. There are two separate incidents. The first involves bear spray, which marked the bear. The second involved cracker shells from a 44 caliber handgun, probably a 44 Magnum. From the FOIA, incident number, incident number 41. October 19th, October 26, 1986. Tourists in temporary camp were observed hand-feeding bears for several weeks. Sardines and lard had been put in the willows surrounding the camp. During the six days researchers were in the camp, nine bears approached. At the sound of movement within the camp, one bear repeatedly charged the structures and pounded the walls. In the six days, seven charges were initiated by two bears. The charges appeared to be directed at the people in the camp. One bear almost entered the stationary vehicles. It was deterred with a broom and bear spray in the face. Four days later, and four kilometers southwest, a bear with a red stain on his forehead, which may have been the bear spray, charged a group of 12 people. The bear ignored both cracker shells and shots from a 44 caliber handgun. The people involved were forced to climb a nearby tower or enter an adjacent building. This is probably the first account of bear spray being non-experimentally used under field conditions on a polar bear. Now, the objective definition of a failure with a handgun involving a bear was decided when the project was started. The criteria for inclusion in this study is a pistol had to be fired to defend against a bear or bears. If it was not fired, the incident was not included. If the use of the handgun stopped the attack, that was a success whether the bear was killed immediately or left the scene as long as it stopped attacking. In the scenario at Churchill on October, the report specifically says that a bear with a red stain on its forehead charged a group of 12 people and ignored cracker shells and a 44 handgun. Nobody got hurt, but the, the, the shots did not stop the attack. And it seems likely they were warning shots. There be some, may, be, may be some political reason why the person with the forty-four handgun was not willing to shoot the bear. Or maybe the person shooting the forty-four handgun simply missed. But there was uh, there's no indication the bear was injured. Of the four incidents where a handgun was fired and failed to stop an attack, this is the weakest case. In only one of the four incidents, the defender clearly attempted to kill the attacking bear. And this occurred in the famous polar, polar bear defense attempted with a twenty-two pistol, which, huh, that's a story all in its own. This incident is graded as a failure because it didn't stop the attack. And about 10% of the incident's warning shots are sufficient. Most incidents involving warning shots alone are not reported or documented. And this is probably the most common defensive use of a handgun with a bear. Now, you, would, you will understand that if a bear is killed, it cannot go on to attack another person. And repeated use of cracker shells or warning shots will eventually teach a bear about their lack of serious effect. And this will make the bear more dangerous. All three of the present species of North American bears, black, brown, grizzly, and polar, have increasing populations. 
The small number of bears which would be killed if all aggressive bears were shot would not have a significant effect on bear populations. The number shot in defensive situations would be far less than the number required to be harvested to keep the bear populations at maintenance levels. You don't, that doesn't happen very often. It makes me think the guy wasn't shooting at the bear. 44 would have been enough, I think. On to, on to other things. To, you know, CBS, you have to look at CBS and say, well, they're not exactly a friend to the Second Amendment now, are they? Um, and a recent story about gun violence in Chicago appears to keep up that trend when it's announced. The problem we heard and saw over and over again was guns. Now, when you hear this from one of these outlets, or when I hear this from one of these outlets, you know, we, we roll our eyes at the post and not I don't really think anything about it because a mainstream media story blaming guns for violence, this only happens on days that end with a Y, right? In the midst of the standard fear-mongering about guns, CBS accidentally exposes a truth that they might not have intended to. Because they were manned on the street. They decided to get on the street. Asked about his forty caliber gun. He, uh, the guy says, off the streets, people sell them. When asked how he got it. Another man said, just like that. That's how easy it is. Porter asked, is it, it's worth it for you to keep these guns? Uh, the guy replies, we're felons. We, you know what I'm saying? Ain't nobody going to give us no jobs. The cops don't give a blank about us. But here you have admitted felons admitting that they uh, have no problem getting guns. Nothing new. Every, every licensed firearm and dealer in this country is required to do a background check. It's by law. There aren't actually rogue dealers like uh, What's-His-Head says that gets out there and, and just sells gun over the counter. There's none of them that get in a van and go to a corner and sell them like he says either. You have to have a photo ID. You have to fill out a 4473. In Chicago, it gets to be a bit more involved. There you have to get a firearm owner's identification card. You have to take an approved safety course. You have to get a Chicago firearms permit. Then after you buy the gun, you have to register it with the city within five days of the purchase failure. To register it within those five days, and your gun is deemed unregisterable. Doing that, everybody's been assured that if you do that, you're going to be safe. This will reduce gun violence. And yet, despite that, despite all these things that are put in place to reduce gun violence, or they tell, well, you know, the people of Chicago are told it's there to reduce gun violence. Despite all that, felons admit on TV that they have no problem at all getting guns. None. How's this possible? And the reality is that only the law-abiding abide by these laws. Only the law-abiding. So, excuse me, all these steps required to legally purchase a firearm in the city of Chicago appears to do very little to dissuade any violent criminal, like a, like a felon would be. You know, 
And if you require all the steps, you're forced to pay an additional $260 over and above the cost of the gun. That's more than some people pay for their low-budget gun in the first place. All in an attempt to stop criminals from getting guns. Now, for all of their pontification about firearms being a public safety hazard, hazard, they still haven't figured out how to convince the average gangbanger to stop breaking gun laws. And if they ever do, maybe they can turn, they can then turn those newfound skills into convincing killers not to kill, rather disarm, than disarming me and you. That's a big issue. That's a huge issue. But it's also one that they're always going to do. They're always going to be this way. They're always going to act this way. Because the problem is you. The problem is the fact that you have guns, and it's you, and uh, that's just all there is to it. So get used to it. Get used to it. We'll be right back. This is Gun Owners News Hour. time this is gun owners news hour i want to ask you a question how many of you have actually bothered to read the constitution or you know what just to make it easier a quick read of the bill of rights 462 words that's all it is take a minute and read those Because if you do that, then uh, you don't need a politician to tell you what it's about. I mean, it's all pretty plain. Then you'll be no, under no illusion about where to draw the line when it comes to speaking your mind, criticizing your government, defending what is yours, doing whatever you want on your own property, and keeping the government's nose out of your private affairs. Because we live in an age now of overcriminalization, where the average citizen unknowingly commits three crimes a day. Acts like uh, fishing and gardening are regulated. Government officials are constantly telling us what not to do. And it is not always, it was not always this way. It used to be that we the people were giving the orders, telling the government what it could and could not do. Indeed, the three words used most frequently throughout the Bill of Rights in regards to the government are no, not, and nor. So, if you compare the following list of don'ts the government is prohibited from doing with the growing list of abuses to which we the people are subjected on a daily basis, well, you'll find that we have reached a state of crisis where the government is routinely breaking the law and violating its contractual obligation. For instance, the government is not allowed to restrict free speech at all, or press, or assembly, or your ability to protest and correct government wrongdoing. Nevertheless, they continue to persecute whistleblowers, persecute journalists, criminalize expressive activities, 
crack down on large, you know, large groups of citizens. The government may not infringe on a citizen's right to defend itself. But in many states, it's against the law to carry a concealed weapon, gun, knife, pepper spray. And the average person is permitted little self-defense against militarized police officers who shoot first. The government may not enter or occupy a citizen's uh, house without his consent. And nevertheless, government soldiers, and that being militarized police, carry out more than 80,000 no-knock raids on private homes every year while maiming children, killing dogs, and shooting citizens. The government may not carry out unreasonable searches and seizures on the citizenry or their possessions, nor can government officials issue warrants without some evidence of wrongdoing. And unfortunately, what is unreasonable to the average American is completely reasonable to a government agent for whom the ends justify the means. And in such a climate, we have no protection against roadside strip searches and blood draws and DNA collection and SWAT team raids and surveillance or any other privacy stripping indignity to which the government chooses to subject us. The government is not to deprive anyone of life, liberty, or property without due process. And nevertheless, the government continues to incarcerate tens of thousands of Americans whose greatest crime is being poor and not white. Same goes for those who are put to death, some erroneously, by a system weighted in favor of class and wealth. The government may not take private property for public use without just compensation. But under the guise of the uh, greater public interest, they often hide behind eminent domain laws to, in order to allow mega corporations to tear down homes occupied by less prosperous citizens in order to build high-priced resorts and shopping malls. Government agents may not force a citizen to testify against himself, yet what is the government's extensive surveillance network that spies on all of our communications but a thinly veiled attempt of using our own words against us? The government is not permitted to claim any powers that are not expressly granted to them by the Constitution. This prohibition has become downright laughable as the government continues to claim for itself every authority that serves to swell its coffers, cement its dominion, and expand that reach. And despite what some special interest groups have suggested to the contrary, the problems we're experiencing today did not arise because the Constitution has outlived its usefulness, become irrelevant. And they're not going to be solved by a convention of states or a ratification of the Constitution. This is a deeper problem. This goes back to the point to where we, the people, were overthrown as the center of the government. And as a result, our supremacy has been undone. Our authority has been undermined, and our experiment in democratic self-governments has been left in ruins. We are no longer the rulers of this land. We have long since been deposed and dethroned, replaced by corporate figureheads with no regard for our sovereignty, no thought for our happiness, and no respect for our rights. So, in other words, without our say-so and lacking any mandate, the point of view of the Constitution has been shifted from we the people to we the government. 
Our taxpayer-funded employees, our appointed servants, have stopped looking upon us as their superiors and started viewing us as their inferiors. And we've gotten so used to being dictated to by government agents and bureaucrats and militarized police that we've forgotten that we're supposed to be the ones calling the shots and determining what is just reasonable and necessary. But then again, we're not the only ones guilty of forgetting the government was established to serve us as well as to obey us. Every branch of government, from the executive to the judicial and legislative, seems to be suffering the same form of amnesia. Certainly when government programs are interpreted from the government's point of view, there is little the government cannot do in its quest for power and control. And we've been so brainwashed and indoctrinated into believing that, uh, you know, the government is actually looking out for us in some form or fashion. When in fact the only compelling interesting Interest-driving government programs is to maintain power and control by taking away our money and control. And this is vital truth, that the government exists for our benefit and operates at our behest. That seems to have been lost in the translation. Over two centuries dominated by government expansion, endless wars, and centralized federal power. Have you ever wondered why the Constitution begins with those three words, we the people? It is intended to be a powerful reminder that everything flows from the citizenry, and we the people are the center of the government and the source of its power. And the we is crucial because it reminds us that there is power and safety in numbers if we stand united. That's the big thing. If we stand united We can accomplish nothing alone. And this is the underlying lesson of the Constitution, which outlines the duties and responsibilities of the government. It was a mutual agreement formed by early Americans in order to ensure that when problems got happened, we could address them together. Like the wagon trains of the Old West, comprised of individual groups of pioneers, they didn't go out alone. They traveled as convoys, and when faced with a threat, they formed their wagons in a tight circle in order to defend against invaders. They presented a unified front, and in much the same way the Constitution was intended to work as an institutionalized version of the wagon circle. We have been ousted from that protected circle, left to fend for ourselves in the wilderness, that is the American frontier today. Those who did the ousting, the courts, the politicians, the corporations have since replaced us with yes-men shills who dance to the tune of an elite ruling class. And when they do that, they have set themselves as the central source of power and the arbiters of what is just and reasonable. And now, once again, we're forced to navigate hostile terrain, unsure of how to protect ourselves. The government is, you know, they're out there stockpiling all these things, the raids, all this stuff, the erection of mass detention centers across the country, all other manner of abuses. Read those smoke signals. Because the government's on the warpath. Recognize that for what it is. Very simple. Stop looking at each other. Stop looking at each other. Look at the government. When that happens, they lose. If they, if, if, that's why ID politics is so popular. That way, if we're, at, if we're at each other's throats, if we're divided, if we're divided, 
We'll never win. Stay awake, stay aware, carry your weapon. This has been Gun Owners News Hour.